to episode 29 of the Carolyn Click Middle East News Hour. I'm your host, Carolyn Click. This is my news hour, and I'm joined today by my intrepid co-host, Gotti Taub. He's joining us as usual from his den of iniquity in Tel Aviv. Hey, Gotti. Exactly. The the the, demonstra- the right wing demonstration is going to take place about seven minutes from here. So I'm guessing I will make it in time. See, you know, you just you just led with the end of the show. This was supposed to be the big send off. We're supposed to say, and Gotti's going to the big right wing rally. That's going to be. I, I always like to trip you, to trip you, you while you're running. <laughs> trip me up, trip me up, trip me up. All right. Having been tripped up, we're not going to reverse the order of this conversation. We're going to go back to my originally <laughs> scheduled plan. So why don't I let the audience in on what we're going to be doing today? Um, we're going to be talking about two things this week in, in, in uh, this week's show. And yes, we were off last week for Hanukkah, and I forgot to wish all of you a happy Hanukkah. So this is just in time to wish you a Merry Christmas. At any rate, um, we were off for Hanukkah and uh, we're back. And today we're going to be talking about uh, Iran and the farce of diplomatic uh, negotiations going on in Vienna. We had a round of negotiations that were both, you know, eminently predictably um, a joke uh, and a complete failure uh, last week. And they're going to continue this week because why not? Um, leave it to the Biden administration to just reinforce their own failures and not reconsider their foundational assumptions about why they should be trying to appease a totalitarian dictatorship that aspires to commit genocide. At any rate, uh, that's one aspect of, that's the first uh, part of our conversation when we talk about Iran and its nuclear program. And the second part of our conversation, we're gonna be talking about Netanyahu's trial, uh, which has really just collapsed. Uh, they've, it's been going on for about two months. The prosecution has, he, they, uh, they front-loaded their best, their best witnesses. They've had eight so far and every single one in turn has gotten up, given testimony uh, that's helped the defense and shattered the prosecution's case. So we're gonna talk about that. And then finally, we're gonna end with a great send off to Gotti. Um, I would be going myself, even though I live an hour and a half away from the rally, but I have a terrible cold and uh, and, and, and many other excuses as well. So I'm not gonna be going, but we will be sending off uh, Gadi with our best wishes. Um, so let's start uh, with Iran. Uh, like I said last week, you had the world powers, the Chinese, the Russians, the European Union, uh, big three, the Germans, the French and the Brits, sitting down in a room with the new representative of the Islamic Republic of Iran, who, whose name, frankly, I don't know, but we can just call him fanatical jihadist number one. And uh, so he was sitting in the room with them. The Americans were sitting in a back room because they're not invited into the main room. And the uh, and the Europeans were passing them notes about what was happening inside because the Iranians refused to sit with the Americans. So in these so-called, in, uh, in these so-called indirect talks, the Iranians did exactly what they said they were going to be doing. They said all they want from the talks is a complete abrogation of the U.S. economic sanctions on Iran. And in addition, they want the Americans to agree to an unconstitutional provision inside of their new agreement, which will bar any future U.S. administration from reinstating sanctions against Iran. So they want they want it all and they want it now and they're not willing to talk about anything else. But in the meantime, uh, they've also made it clear that they want to annihilate Israel, that they are uh, capable of producing nuclear weapons and of enriching uranium to the bomb. And it's amazing. It's enrichment. amazing that the Americans keep thinking that you can somehow appease these people while they are. You know, there's a very rude he- uh, Hebrew uh, um, uh, saying about uh pissing from the springboard they're just they're just they're just humiliating america in public and right. and and uh, and this administration full of do-gooders who think that we can that cleansing our conscience is a foreign policy and that others would appreciate us cleansing our culture us the west um and they're just they, they they've just learned that audacity is uh, pays off and and you know the the when the when Trump was in power, when he just t- took out uh, um, Soleimani, 
they're the head of all the octopus of proxies. The, the Iranians understood that there is no messing around with these people. And, and, and it's just the idea in the West that the way to treat bullies is to understand them. But do you really think that's what they're here. doing? I mean, I, I, I'm not actually clear that the goal of the Biden administration is to block Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons. I'm not, I'm not at all clear that the goal of the Biden administration is to moderate Iranian positions or policies through through appeasement. Um, no, not, no, but they, I'm not but sure they, of that at all. but I, I, this is a very interesting thesis, which I, I would ask you to elaborate because, because, I, because the, the idea that, uh, that the, the JCPOA is a way of containing Iran, I agree with you, is not true. But they do think that if they give Iran a stake in the game, then Iran will moderate. I think this was the Obama philosophy and the, the, the JCPOA is just a cover up for the nuclear program. Um, Obama himself in one unguarded moment said that by 2028, the breaking time from uh, uh, low breakout enriched time. breakout time uh, to to a full nuclear device bomb uh, would be close to zero. He said that uh, about 2028. So, um, so the, clearly they were going to agree to a uh, to a nuclear Iran. But the thought behind it, as far as I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, was that once Iran becomes a a an, a respectable uh, hegemonic power in the a respected hegemonic power in the Middle East, then it would moderate. See, I, I don't actually think that, that 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 was the goal. I think that that's a very sympathetic rendition of uh, what Obama was after, and certainly what Biden is after today. I I I don't uh, I, because the as you pointed out, the JCPOA is not a nuclear nonproliferation agreement, and in fact, it turned on its head you know, uh, uh, 75 years of U.S. nonproliferation policies by awarding uh, or rewarding, sorry, bad behavior, uh, illegal, illicit nuclear activities by Iran with, uh, with a good housekeeping seal of approval for Iran's nuclear enrichment, uranium enrichment. Um, it's hard to view the goal of either the Obama administration at its time or the Biden administration today as seeking to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear power, from seeking to, from, from acquiring nuclear weapons or from reaching the point where just a turn of the screw will provide them with that nuclear arsenal. But that, that's not what I said. I said that that the giving allowing them a nuclear arsenal is part of the plan. But the idea is that once they are a regional power, they will have a stake in the game and be in moderate. Um, right. you, don't, so, you don't agree about that? Well, I mean, if true, then then they're crazy, right? I mean, you give uh, you give a genocidal and an, an openly genocidal regime, the most prolific state uh, sponsor of terrorism uh, in the world, which it has been since its inception in 1979. Uh, a nuclear arsenal, and you believe that that's going to turn, and, and that is the means to carry out their ideological goals, and you think that once they have those means, they're going to, they're going to renege on, on everything that they've stood for and fought for uh, uh, all their lives. And so that's actually, that's actually so deranged as to be, you know, uh, hard to believe. So, think, so what do you what I think is, that yeah. I think that what's happening here is of a piece of the larger Biden foreign policy, which is to empower America's enemies and to undermine America's allies and to America, undermine the United States. I mean, I think that they have a very radical view of the United States. I think they have an anti-American view of the United States. I think that in practice, the Biden administration's policies towards everyone towards uh, towards the towards the Taliban, towards Iran, towards China, towards Russia, towards everyone. I can't think of any country that uh, the that the US is 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 uh, is operating towards in a manner that advances America's national security and power or that of its allies. It's not advancing its interests either economic or strategic. Uh, anywhere as in the as service of what goal in the long run I mean and when you also look at what they're doing to the military and transforming the military 
into an anti-American organization where, where soldiers and airmen and Marines are being indoctrinated to think that their country is evil and systemically racist and has been uh, since before it was founded. Um, uh, what's the goal? I, I mean, I, I really, uh, at this point, it's very hard for me uh, to avoid the conclusion that these people want America to be transcended by, by, by something else. I mean, I, I, you, you can't, uh, you, you can make a mistake in certain things and say, look, you know, they were misguided here or there, they, they misread the situation in one way or another, but their intentions were, were pure. But when you do it across the board, everywhere, towards everyone, ally, enemy, uh, it, it's hard to avoid the conclusion that they're not they're not trying to promote America's national security or, or national interests abroad as they've been construed broadly for the past 20, 250 years, you know, protecting the United States. Look at their policy on the border. I mean, they have an open border policy. They are not, they are, they are not enforcing any of their immigration laws uh, along the southern border. And, you know, they're expecting to have what, like 2 million people come into the United States. That's an that's a, that's a major city. Of, of illegal aliens that are coming into the United States in the, in the course of one year. They, 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 deliberately, uh, they deliberately lost Afghanistan and handed it over to the Taliban. They gave Bagram Air Base to China. They knew all of this stuff was gonna happen. It was eminently predict, you know, foreseeable. Everything that they did was foreseeable and foreseen. And they were warned against it and Biden did it. I don't know. I mean, look, I, 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 I risk, I guess, sounding like a conspiracy theorist, but there's no, there's no strategic rationality behind any of the things that they're doing. Ukraine, right? I mean, Russia has has positioned a hundred thousand forces along the border with Ukraine. After what happened in Afghanistan, nothing that the United States says in relation to Putin uh, has any credibility. It, the Chinese are, are engaging in, in aggression of aggressive air sorties into Taiwan's airspace. I don't know that, you know, and, and the United States' strategic credibility throughout all of Asia is based on the presumption that they're going to defend Taiwan and the Biden administration is doing nothing whatsoever to to persuade anybody that that's actually a serious commitment. I mean, China, China looks at the United States, and uh, you know, I'm sure that they are very, very emboldened. They they launched. You know, I talked about this a uh, couple of weeks ago with uh, Dr. Stephen Bryan. Uh, the implications of China's uh, hypersonic missile test uh, and their and their uh, testing of their satellite killing test. Uh, space-based satellites that are capable of destroying American satellites. And GPS, all of its military communications, most of its economic communications. Um, and the United States has the ability to launch its own satellite killing satellites, but it's not doing so. It's years and years behind both Russia and China now in supersonic technology. So, and, and in the meantime, its military is engaged in advancing equity. And, you know, the space command uh, is involved with actively recruiting minorities to serve in space command. They're not in. They're not. They don't seem to be as intensely involved with developing America's hypersonic missile systems or uh, producing or developing protection to them, air defenses against them. You know who's developing America's defense against hypersonic missiles? Israel. Israel is. Uh, the uh, the Aero 4 project that Israel is uh, developing with the United States is geared towards two things. It's geared towards one, intercepting uh, multiple uh, multiple ballistic missiles that are shot simultaneously, which is obviously a major threat that Israel faces from, from uh, Iran and from Lebanon and from Syria. Uh, but the United States also faces from North Korea and from China and from Russia. But the second goal of Aero 4 is to develop space-based artificial intelligence-centric, apparently, as we know from, from Dr. Bryant, uh, defenses against hypersonic missiles, which are 
basically systems. And the only way that you can really intercept them is if you intercept them very close to launch because they move so quickly. They move between Mac 10, Mac 5 and Mac 20. So, you know, these are incredibly fast guided missiles that are guided from the moment that they take off until the moment of impact. Um, so they can constantly change directions. So the only way you're going to really have a chance of intercepting them is if you do it basically as soon as they're launched. Um, and America has no protection against it. Now, Israel is not being threatened by anybody with hypersonic missiles. China and Russia aren't planning on attacking Israel with hypersonic missiles, and nobody else has them. Uh, so this is a threat that's uh, being directed first and foremost against the United States. And the people that are developing the defenses for it, first and foremost, are the Israelis. So, you know, I, I'm just saying, like, I look at what the Americans are doing in Iran, and I think it's important that you know, they're not listening to reason, not only on Iran, but basically on anything, because I think it really points to the problematic nature of how Israel is responding to America's uh, strategic blindness, if you want to call it that, on, on the threat being posed by Iran and, and, their, and their contemptuous treatment of the United States in Vienna and more generally. And, uh, and, and Israel is uh, under the new government uh, instituting, it doesn't admit it now, but a policy of no surprises towards the, the United States. That is, Israel is subordinating its strategic interests to a, a, to a regime that is hostile to its um, existential um, concerns here. Um, I, I spoke on my podcast with David Chancer from the uh, Foundation for the Defense of uh, Democracies, and he said clearly, he said Israel can't afford to Jonathan trust. Jonathan Chancer, right? Jonathan, yes, yeah, sorry. Uh, Jonathan Chancer, Dr. Jonathan Chancer from the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, who wrote a book now called The Gaza Conflict 2021, an interesting and insightful book about uh, the, the, the strategic context of this conflict within the struggle against Iran. And what he says is that you Israelis, you can't afford to trust the Biden administration when it comes to your vital interests. You know what's most depressing to me? I mean, it's not the most depressing. There's so many different depressing things about this uh, government in Israel that we were faced with today. But one of them is that, you know, when is that they have absolutely no understanding of how to handle the Biden administration. And, and, I'll, and I'll put it in two ways. First of all, today, we have uh, Defense Minister Benny Gantz is about to leave for Washington, where he's going to be joining the head of Mossad uh, to try to talk sense to the Americans. And they're bringing all these new data that are showing how the Americans you know, are wrong to be trusting the Iranians, that their model of the negotiations is wrong, and they should be doing something else. But um, that's not going to convince anybody, and they ought to have understood it by now. So that the idea that we're we're still chasing the Americans shows that, you know, fundamentally they don't get the game. I mean, the UAE does, you know, I, I think it's terrible, but they sent their national security advisor to Tehran this week where he met uh, with uh, Iran's uh, new president, the butcher of Tehran, Ibrahim Raisi, who warned him against the Zionists and the Zionist plots, which is very nice of him. But here are our peace partners in the Abraham Accords, the UAE, uh, are now uh, moving towards Iran. And the reason that they're doing it is because they get that uh, the Americans are not, not with them, that the Americans are not serious about preventing Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons. And instead of Israel obviously not going to Iran and trying to make a deal with the Iranians, but instead of Israel you know, taking matters into its own hands and doing what needs to be done, uh, Israel is is putting it continues to put all of its eggs in America's basket when it's clear, you know, there is no basket there. They removed it. They're not interested in anything that Israel has to say. Robert Malley, you know, he doesn't care. He's not there. In he was not put in his position in order to listen to Israel. He was put in his position to end the sanctions on Iran while giving them a good housekeeping seal of approval of the UN Security Council and the US government to go ahead and develop a nuclear arsenal. And that is just the truth. And you know, there is another option, right? Because when Obama was president, 
And it became very clear fairly early on, I would say already, you know, I, I saw it already in the first term, but it became, you know, open in 2012 or 13 when, when, uh, when word leaked out of the secret talks that, the, uh, that Obama's people were having with the Iranians on their nuclear program in Oman behind Israel's back, um, that they were fundamentally unserious about preventing Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons. It was clear when they supported the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt against Hosni Mubarak that they that they had a completely different understanding of Islam, radical Islam, jihad, than Israel or the Sunni Arab states had. Um, they they supported the so-called Arab Spring, which led to the rise of Islamists throughout the Middle East. They walked away from Iraq and handed it over to Iran in 2011. Um, so it was very, and actually the reason why all of this was known was because Obama stated that these were his policies in his June 2009 speech at the American University in Cairo, where he deliberately invited against the wishes of Hosni Mubarak, representatives of the Muslim Brotherhood, which at that time was an outlawed organization in, in Egypt. So you look at all of this and, and then Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu looked at all of this and he realized that Israel was going to have to stop tying all of its regional policies to the United States, stop tying its Iran policy to the United States, stop tying its policies regarding jihadists, Al-Qaeda, Hamas, and all the rest of them, you know, uh, Sunni jihadists, I mean, to the United States, because the United States had was out to lunch. You know, they just they just turned to the other side. And so Netanyahu used Obama's years in power and particularly his second term to branch out and to develop uh, operational ties that ended up becoming a partnership with America's spurned Sunni allies. Um, he opposed Morsi, he supported, excuse me, uh, uh, the U Egyptian military's uh, ouster of the Muslim Brotherhood from power in Egypt in 2013. Um, and he was able to develop very cooperative ties with the Saudis and the UAE. And he did it uh, first, you know, in, in many ways, but the most overt aspect of his operation was that he very vocally opposed America's nuclear diplomacy with the Iranians. And in so doing, and obviously the, the sort of the, the top moment of that opposition uh, came in, in March of 2015 when he when he went before the joint houses of Congress and gave his famous speech against the nuclear deal uh, with Iran. But um, all of these things served to convince Israel's regional uh, neighbors, our neighbors in the region, that Israel was serious about preventing Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons so that if America wasn't going to be doing it, then Israel was. And the the global impact of that, leaving aside the, the salutary uh, impact it had on Israel's regional standing and indeed its international standing, um, but it was to buy time till Trump came into office because you know, it's very clear today, and it was clear back then as well, that the United States uh, is of two minds that have almost no common ground about foreign affairs. Um, and that if a Republican were to take office in 2016, uh, he would be able to come into a situation where he would be able to quickly rebuild America's position and power in the region because Israel had maintained it in in during Obama's tenure. And that's exactly what Trump did. Trump standing in the region, America standing in the region. Trump was able to rebuild America's alliances in the region very quickly because Netanyahu had maintained the structure of those alliances when he reached out to the Saudis and the UAE and the Egyptians against Hamas, against the Muslim Brotherhood and against Iran. So if, if Netanyahu hadn't done that, then like we're seeing today, you know, the, the Saudis and the UAE are getting much closer to the Chinese. The Egyptians are going off with the Russians so that a lot of, because the, the, the Arabs recognize that the Americans aren't with them anymore. And, so, and, and it, rather than 
working to maintain the Abraham Accords and strengthen them and strengthen the military cooperation that, that served as the basis of those accords, uh, we have the Bennett-Lapid government um, not understanding what they're supposed to do. And instead of working with in a very significant way with, with those allies in the region, they're rushing to Washington and they're begging the Americans to reconsider a position that it's very clear that they're not going to reconsider. And, and you know, this is a this is a troubling time. When you have a failure, it's one thing when you have a have an irresponsible or strategically treacherous American administration and a good and and competent Israeli government. It's a it's a different kettle of fish when you have incompetent leaders in both countries. The, the Lapid government is presenting its policy as a new era of cooperation, of positive building of alliances, and all these are just names for their complete surrender. And, and, and the, you know, I, I have no, um, no hard evidence of this, but from, from I, I spoke to some, some people lately in, recently in Washington, um, and they're saying that this, this government is just a complete hostage of the Democrats. They're just running them. And, and, that, and that basically um, the people who are pretending to run our foreign policy are to a large extent sock puppets for, for the Democrats. And, it's, and this is frightening because you know we have, we have a completely ignorant uh, uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, who is just an he, he never finished high school, and 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 they and they get it. They get it. What he, he thinks of of his position as a new form of celebrity, and they let him ha get get photographed with important people, and he just and and he tweets it, and it's amazing because you know people from his. Um, for someone from his uh, from his party who was also in the in the in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs published in Twitter a whole list of his meetings with nothing nothing about the content nothing it's just I met this and I met this and I met this and they're getting it they're just getting it you know and and the, and they're manipulating it and we know that the Democratic Party is also has its fingers deep in the security um, um, bureaucracy of Israel through all these think tanks and joint ventures and academic uh, discussions and 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 uh, think tanks and all that um and 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 we and we have basically subordinated our foreign policy to an interest of a superpower that is now shifting away from us that's i i'm trying this this is the the long view and this is what we're doing and it's and it, and and this is as presented to the israeli public as netanyahu you know netanyahu was so grim and pessimistic about everything and we here's a new future and it's open and we find allies and we cooperate based on values and all and and all this and and they, they and and you can see where they got the rhetoric you can see ben rhodes laughing somewhere in the in the background now you're, uh, I mean, you know, I saw that Ben Rhodes was actually, uh, he was, um, he, he was uh, uh, attacking APAC the other day, right? He was saying that APAC was no good because APAC, I, I don't remember what he was accusing APAC of doing, but of course, what was funny was that APAC was the most abused organization by the Obama administration. I mean, they just abused them. They abused them. The APAC leaders campaigned for Obama, you know, and then they campaigned uh, for Obama again in 2012, and they and they uh, campaigned for Obama or for Hillary in 2012 in 2016, and and this is an organization that the the Obama administration actually spied against. They spied on them during the, the, the all of the things that they did to Trump. I think we've spoken about this in the past that that all of the things that they did to the Trump campaign to the Trump campaign operatives. They used the NSA wiretaps against them uh, for political gain, which is totally, it's a, it's a very serious felony in the United States. That practice began with their hounding of APAC in the summer of 2014 uh, during the congressional fight over approval in the Senate of Obama's JCPOA. Uh, and, and yet here's Ben Rhodes attacking APAC. You know, I mean, it, it, it's pathetic. 
but it's true. So you're right. I mean, the the administrator. There's no question that this government um, owes its very existence to to the Americans, uh, to the Democrats, to the Biden administration. They played an instrumental role in bringing all of the parties together to that you know signed this coalition agreement. Uh, they were, uh, Dan Shapiro was involved in it. He was speaking, according to what I've been told, uh, repeatedly all the time with Naftali Bennett, with Yair Lapid, uh, and acting essentially as a mediator organizing this whole thing. So yes, the idea that they're beholden to a foreign power that at this point is openly hostile to Israel's existential interest of uh, preventing Iran from acquiring nuclear weapon, I think that, I think that that's a fair assessment. And by the time this uh, this podcast goes on air, uh, my interview with Netanyahu would have been already published on YouTube this um, Wednesday morning, tomorrow morning, as relative to the time we're recording now, the 8th of December. Netanyahu, Netanyahu said that he spoke with Joe Biden while before this, this government was formed and that Joe Biden uh, told him, let's keep the disagreements between us in in closed rooms and and Netanyahu uh, said I'm sorry uh, Mr. President no um, and, and this is the, this what Netanyahu did during the Obama um, the Obama era was keep this option of Israeli Israeli solo um, I don't know solution or solo um, policy towards Iran without cooperation, which which limited Obama's room of maneuver. Um, we don't know uh, what exactly uh, Israel has done. We don't know all. We know we we know that probably a lot of the things we see, all the strange fires and and um, and takalot, huh? Malfunctions. Yeah, malfunctions breakdowns at, at Nantaz or at other nuclear sites are probably. Uh, not the Biden administration's doing, um, but they just may well be Israel's. And and Israel, um, Israel is is of course the much weaker partner, but it can but it can still play the part of you know if you push us to the wall, we can cause great trouble. Um, and Netanyahu, who 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 did this uh, firmly and politely, he didn't play the what Nixon called the madman theory of the president. Um, but, but he was very stern about this, and he said, "When when it comes to our existential existential interests, we can and we will act alone." And this is, the, and and when you do that, you you uh, at least curtail partly the room of maneuver that even a superpower has. And there's no chance of these people doing it. They're such they're complete amateurs, and they're still they they the way you, I, I don't know I don't know it's always. It's it's always irresponsible to guess the psychology, but as far as I can see, they are so beholden to their own new celebrity that they're not they're not focused on what's going on. They're just like, you see this guy, and he's like, whoa, I'm the I'm the prime minister. Can you believe that? I, did you see his picture I, I think, I in Balfour? Right. I think he's, you're right. I think you're right. But I also think that we are seeing uh, all kinds of mishaps happening in Iran. Uh, particularly in Nantaz, uh, we did see an Israeli uh, airstrike against a, a ship in Latakia port. That's the first time that we've seen something like that since 2018. And I think uh, from the reports that I've seen, they were, they were uh, precision guided missiles that were trying to dock at the port. Um, so there, is, there, there are operations being carried out, some of them rather bold, um, and I think that that's important. I think it's really important for for and I and I think that to the extent that this government is doing them, I think that's wonderful because there was a, at least a pause of about four months where you didn't hear reports of anything happening inside of Iran after they took office. Um, and so I think that what you're seeing here is a renewal of Israeli sabotage in and that's what appears to be obviously I mean, nobody told us this. Uh, but but um, and I think, that you're right, Israel even today has a lot of room. You know, uh, we have an enormous amount of uh, credibility in this area uh, because of the things that we've been doing for the past decade. And I think that you know, if if um, if they want to use it, you know, that that they can. And the other thing is that you know, 
and I just want to I want to end this section with this and then move on to the political aspect of the of the realities of the reality that we're living in today here in Israel, which is uh, also pretty troubling as we keep alluding to. Um, but you know, when I was in when I was in Washington this summer, I met with uh, Iranian uh, diaspora leaders of the Iranian community in in the United States, and they have been. Uh, I think it's called the National Union for Democracy in Iran. Uh, I spoke with the head of the organization, head of the article that I'm writing for Israel Ayom this week. Um, you know, they they want very simple things. You know, they want well. First of all, they want to overthrow the the, the regime, and I think that you know, they speak for the Iranian people, not because they're the representatives of the Iranian people, but for the past at least 30 years, the Iranian people, all ethnic persuasions in Iran have made clear, have put the pedal to the metal. They've risked their lives and many have given their lives uh, as seeking to overthrow this regime. And nobody has ever supported them. I, Trump, uh, this is sort of the most despicable thing that I've seen is there was a Yahoo story that came out two weeks ago that showed that Trump wanted to overthrow the regime, that he had this whole policy that he put together at the National Security Council. Uh, and they and they ordered the Pentagon and the CIA to carry it out to destabilize the regime and empower the Iranian people against the regime. And the Pentagon and the CIA refused to carry out their orders. Sounds familiar because that's sort of the same lines that uh, you know, we've seen with the with the IDF and the Mossad over the years of refusing to do things that they're ordered to do against Iran by the government here, uh, by the military brass and the the Mossad leadership in the past. Um, and they and they they slow rolled it and they didn't do it until it was too late until after uh, Trump had been had been defeated and replaced by Biden. So, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff that you don't have to be in the United States in order to help the Iranians do. And, uh, you know, they're very organized, they're very smart, but they keep losing their internet access because that's what the regime does to prevent them from communicating with one another. And for the past 10 years, uh, Iranians have been begging America or Israel to provide them with guaranteed internet access so that they can communicate with one another access to major internet portals like Facebook, Twitter, whatever, so that they can get their message out to the world so that they can present the truth about what's happening inside of Iran uh, to the world and they can place pressure on the regime both at home and outside um, and nobody's helping them. But I think that a campaign that involved both strengthening the Iranian people, standing with them and providing them with the logistical support that they need, that they've been asking for for over a decade, and continuing with the sabotage of Iran's nuclear uh, installations can go a long way to improving the strategic uh, atmosphere. And you know, and and just one last thing on that. You know, from my experience, and I think from everybody's experience, we just think about the way that things work in the world in our own lives. <clears throat> you see that when you do something, whatever it is that you do, I mean, they always use the example of throwing a, a pebble into a pond and then and then the waves going out, right? And, and you disturb the water. And when the water is disturbed, things happen underneath the water. And the point is, I mean, it's sort of like the chaos theory, but not really. It's just that when you actually do something, you're impacting the world around you. And then it changes because it responds to the change in its environment. And things, and, and you can start, it's not really a circle, they call it a virtuous circle, but you, you just start moving things. You start moving things in a certain direction. Everybody says, you know, when they're giving excuses for not doing things, well, I can't get everything that I want. I'm not guaranteed 100% results if I just do this one step, what I can do. So therefore it's not really worth it. You know, one of the main arguments that's been given over the years for not taking military action against Iran's nuclear installations is that, well, we're not going to be able to knock them all out. Uh, the damage that would be done uh, would be temporary and they'd be able to swiftly rebuild. But then you don't take into, into consideration the psychological impact that an Israeli direct military hit on Iran's nuclear sites would have on the regime, on the psyche of the regime, and on the psyche of the Iranian people who want to overthrow the regime, on the psyche of neighboring states, whether it's Azerbaijan 
or Saudi Arabia or, or Yemen or anywhere else, how they would react to Iran once it's been proven to be vulnerable to Israeli strikes. So, I mean, there are all of these things people don't take into consideration when they make an argument for not doing anything. But the argument for doing something, even if it's limited, is, is, a, is a converse of that. If you, again, if you make something change, then it changes, it responds. And if you change it in a good way, then, then the likelihood that continued change will be, will be salutary to your side of things rises. So, I mean, that, that's how, that, that would be the argument for helping the Iranian people, aside from the moral argument that these people have been living under the jackboot of a murderous regime that has been murdering them for over 40 years. And, and we ought to help them because it's just the right thing to do. Um, but uh, you know, their struggle very much is our struggle because so long as this regime lasts, it's going to seek nuclear weapons and it's going to seek nuclear weapons to carry out its pledge of death to Israel and death to America uh, and global jihad. And so therefore it should be ended and we should, we should support that. If I can make just one one last point about this, is when I say that Israel has an option, um, Israel also will have no choice but to use the most radical means at its disposal if it would feel that its very existence is threatened, and 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 this is um, this can this can lead the whole of the Middle East into a complete chaos. And, and I, this is, I'm by no means recommending such a thing, but this is not an empty threat when it comes to, um, to Israel's very existence, because, because we have uh, learned the lessons of the 20th century and, 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 and we have worked to, to reach a situation where it would be too costly to try and annihilate us, annihilate us. I'm never, I'm never sure. Annihilate. Annihilate yeah, us, um, and so and so. When I'm saying that Israel can limit the the room of maneuver even for a superpower, it's it's not an empty threat. I agree, and and I think that you know let's let's segue now, which is just say let's just move on to the next subject. I think we've done Iran, um, and you know I I think it's pretty amazing when you think about it. Um, and I wrote it, I wrote it last week uh, just as a tweet in Hebrew. Um, the, the testimony that we're getting now from Nir Hefetz, uh, Netanyahu's former spokesman, who's a state's witness, he turned state witness against his former boss after undergoing what his, you know, what uh, ill treatment, which really reaches the level of, of torture uh, from what, what he's described, the specific actions that were taken against him by the police at the direction of state prosecutors after he was arrested in the middle of the night, Paul Manafort style uh, from his home in the, you know, uh, by, by, armed, by armed policemen. Uh, uh, and, um, you know, I, I, think, uh, I think when you look at this, you see that, it, and then he gets up on the stage, I mean, uh, uh, in court, and he has nothing. He's got nothing on Netanyahu. Uh, and, and the thing that's striking to me about this is that um, he's the eighth prosecution witness to go up on the stand so far. And they, as I said at the outset, they up, they front loaded all of their top witnesses and every single one of them was supposed to be that, you know, smoking gun that shows that Netanyahu uh, uh, received bribes in the form of positive coverage from this website called Walla here in Israel. Uh, and that uh, in exchange, he gave regulatory, uh, regulatory um, uh, perks uh, and sweetheart deals to the owner of the website, who was also the owner of Bezek, which was Israel's, which is Israel's largest telecommunication company, uh, as you know, from, and and this was never, this never made any sense. I mean, never had made any sense because bribery has there's no precedent for referring to bribes as a receive as a receipt of positive coverage, and because Netanyahu never received positive coverage from Walla. And because the decisions on on the regular the on the regulatory issues that were at stake in regards to Bezek uh, were made by the regulators, not by the prime minister, so that there was really no basis at all for uh, for the in, in the indictment for bribery. Um, but all eight of the and and that's what you and I and and others have been arguing from the get go, right? Um, 
But what's amazing is that the prosecution's top star witnesses, all eight of them have gotten up and testified that we're right, that this entire indictment, this entire case is a crock of shit, excuse me, crock of poop, you know, that, that there's absolutely nothing to it, that it's a total lie. It's complete fabrication. There's there's no there there whatsoever. There was no criminal intent. There was no crime. Uh, there was no victim. There was no, no, there was nothing. There was no bribe. There was no, you know, payment for a bribe. There was nothing. So near, near Hefetz gets up and he says this. And, and, and the thing that was most striking about his testimony to me and the fact that he attested to the fact that there was nothing, that it was all a lie, is that his turning state's witness I think it was somewhere in 2019, if I'm not mistaken, or late 2018, was presented to the public as proof, living, breathing proof that Netanyahu was a crook and that he had to be ousted from power because he was completely illegitimate. That is, Nir Hefetz's, uh, the push on him, the, you know, the, the, the ill treatment, he was denied food, he was denied medication, he was put in a room filled with fleas, uh, and uh, and that, that doesn't quite capture it, darling. The, this, so you, this, you, you, he was it, he 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 was treated in an interrogation like you would treat a ticking bomb terrorist. Right. They put all kinds of psychological and physical uh, pressure on him. They also did something. I'm not sure if we were yet allowed to speak about it. They brought some. They, they they did this this uh, shtick in his in, interrogation that led him to believe that they were going to um, uh, to to uh, dismantle his family, and right. they threatened explicitly they that they that they will dismantle his family, and it was and they made it credible, um, and they told him that they will interrogate him like the Shabak, the security service, uh, the general security service interrogates terrorists. And that is what they did. And note that he is a witness. He's not even accused in a crime, let alone being a, a ticking bomb terrorist. And they're using all those methods. And he says that those methods are all designed to um, extract a version of event from him that would be useful against Netanyahu. That is for for that purpose. They applied that kind of pressure, and in Israel, these these people in the the, the attorney general's office and the state attorney's office um, have, uh, uh, in recent years, um, just lost all controls and all limits, um, which are supposed to be protecting their their human rights. It's just you know, they, I, I, Americans would probably be shocked at the ease with which they can take your phone without a warrant and just search it. And they can apply pressure. They can prevent you from seeking legal, de facto prevent you from seeking legal counsel or, or having any um, access to what is supposed to be your rights. And we are, and, and you know, and we should be grateful that they have tried to target Netanyahu because we, because all this is going, it was, was, was done in secret and a, a, a cooperative press, you know, the press since Watergate has, where the Watergate is like the, the, the exemplary um, behavior where the press um, along with some uh, secret leaker are, is, is, is speaking truth to power. The press now is just an agent of the power of the state and leaks are being Official or officially used by the very people who apply state power in order to advance their case against Netanyahu in the press. So there was an, an illegal campaign of, of of selective leaks from the Netanyahu interrogations. And right, this and is the just... thing, though, but the thing about it that's so incredible and that's coming out now in spades in the in the trial and that came out very clearly with Hefetz was that this was a coup. That, yeah. you know, that there's literally nothing behind the indictments. It's all a lie. They put Israeli society through three years of tumult politically because they wanted to oust Netanyahu from power. They, they, they used their power as the state prosecution, as the attorney general, to oust a popular, successful prime minister from power, 
This was all political. I mean, there's nothing legal here. There's nothing criminal here. And like you said, I mean, this was a fishing expedition. They arrested the, 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 the former spokesman of the prime minister in the middle of the night from his house. They threatened to destroy his life. They threatened With to like a, a Hollywood family. spectacle. Right. They, and they did it. Yeah. For nothing. And, and then they presented it to the public as near Hefetz's testimony against Netanyahu proved incontrovertibly and with selective leaks from the investigation, which were all lies, it works out. It, 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 it reminds an American audience of Adam Schiff saying, bombshell, bombshell. Now we right. have, yeah. And then when it came out that they had nothing, that nobody, in, in nobody, nobody who came before Adam Schiff's committee said anything that could any way be interpreted as incriminating towards President Trump or any of his or any of his aides in relation to Russia. It was all a lie. It's the exact same thing. And, and really, obviously, we've spoken about this as well, you know, at length, the, the, the extraordinary parallels, each one in their own way between uh, the railroading uh, and ouster through through legal through a legal coup or a coup of lawyers in Israel and what happened to Donald Trump at the hands of the FBI. And I just want to make one point that, that most Americans also don't make, but I disagree with the assessment of Watergate that most people make that this is some sort of a, of, of a pinnacle of, of free press because you said it was uh, uh, journalists together with a whistleblower. But what what came out just you know several years ago when the whistleblower died and his and his point and and his identity was made known it was it was a man named Feldman who was a deputy director of the FBI and he did it for two reasons he had two motives one is that he was angry at Nixon for ousting J Edgar Hoover and the other one was that Nixon didn't appoint him to replace J Edgar Hoover so that you know when when you talk about uh, the role that the Justice Department played in the Trump-Russia lie, you know, and they played a central role in that, and that the intelligence services of the United States played in 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 using intelligence information to try to criminalize to criminalize uh, you know, national security advisor and and member and other members of the Trump administration and the Trump campaign, you know, this this is something that Feltman did. In Watergate, right? I mean, he used the information that he had as the deputy director of the FBI to carry out an effective coup to force Nixon from power. And you know, we and and uh, Woodward and Bernstein uh, just were his mouthpieces in the press. I mean, they had nothing without Deep Throat. Nothing. The the Watergate break-in was nothing. It was a nothing burger. It would have gone nowhere if they didn't have the information that Deep Throat was feeding them about the committee to reelect the president. And again, he he was doing it as the deputy director of the FBI. So yeah, com that break in compared to the spying on the Trump campaign via an unmasking. Of, of American citizens in uh, intelligence intercepts uh, via the um, um, digital penetration through uh, Carter Page's um, uh, email and, and phone accounts and, and everything else makes Water, Watergate pale. But the thing in Watergate is the role of the press, I think, uh, Caroline, not just deep throat. And the press there behaved bravely, while now the press in Israel and in America is an accomplice of the very power structure it's supposed to guard democracy against. And this is because, as you know, I think, for a while now, those 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 internationalist elites um, um, are, are of the same cloth, and so the journalists and the bureaucrats and and the 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 elite businessmen are now all coming from the same universities that teach them in the tradition of Edward Said that that they should feel guilty about being Western. I agree. I mean, you wrote about this in your book and, you know, it's been on the, on in, you know, coming out everywhere, you know, this seepage of the, 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 
the collusion that you see between the elites and Western societies against the people of Western societies is something that really is a common feature of so many Western societies these days. And also the demonization, obviously, of leaders and of, and of, 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 of uh, political camps that oppose them, right? I mean, this, this is something that we're seeing repeated everywhere. Um, and and uh, yes, and I think that what's happened with Netanyahu really is uh, part and parcel of that. But uh, and 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 I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I think obviously what's happening with the polling with Biden, what happened in in Virginia is very very important. What's happening with the Supreme Court and and the abortion cases is important. I mean, I think a lot of things that are happening in the United States are are, are really important in, in terms of pushing back in terms of pushing it back. And, you know, like I said, it's one thing when when America goes nuts with Obama, but that their allies have 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 competent and rational and clear headed uh, leaders who are capable of surviving of surviving um, with America uh, acting, you know, going rogue uh, as has happened in the Obama years. And it's another thing when we're all being led by madmen, right? I mean, are all being led by corrupt pals or all being led by internationalists or, or the, you know, or, you know, or the jet setters. And, you know, that, that's my, that's my principal concern right now vis-a-vis -vis Iran and vis-a-vis -vis so many other things is that, um, you know, we we're led by the same people, which, which brings us really, I think, uh, to where we wanted to leave off, which is at the rally that you're about to head to, and that uh, I'll be there in spirit um, in in Tel Aviv uh, by the Bima National Theater. Uh, so why don't we just talk a little bit about the political situation here and where, you know, what what this, why is this rally interesting um, and why we should care about it? Because I think the we are we are facing a a very cynical coalition, um, which has a which puts on a smiling face, but is actually um, playing a very unfair uh, power game, where they're they're taking over the parliamentary commissions, uh, they're pushing out the opposition from what we. These are things you can't do in in the the American structure of government, but they are. They are just bullying the opposition out of any ability to um, even voice, let alone fight for its point of view. And, and this has been done in what is technically legal and democratic, but what is essentially totally corrupt, where, where um, politicians who presented themselves as lifelong right-wingers have sold their own voters contrary to all their uh, campaign promises to a left-wing post-Zionist government that is dependent on the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, it's amazing that the Muslim Brotherhood is part of the coalition in Israel. It's illegal in, in, in Egypt. And so what means do we, do we have to, to express the fact that this, that this coalition has a majority in, in the parliament, but is actually a minority in the population. And one of the things you, you, you can do in a democracy is demonstrate and, and try to rally the, the, the public um, to, to protest because you know we, we keep blaming them, but, but there is a serious fault of ours. It's if, if the voters of the right had gone to the polls in the same, numbers that the left has, all this would not have happened. And so I think it's at this junction specifically in, in, our, in our political life, it's, it's extremely important to remind people of, of, of the legal civil means that they have to express their powers against the government. That's also, um, it represents complete surrender to 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 the bureaucracy and to to the growing um, state power and eclipse of our basic liberties. I agree so much, and and you know I think that you know uh, there's so many unfortunate parallels uh, between what's happening in the United States and what's happening here, because of course you know as as uh, Biden is dismantling. 
sort of the, the the foundations of American foreign policy, or what's you know, and certainly everything that Trump accomplished, um, and doing it rather systematically. Um, he's also doing uh, a lot of damage at home in his domestic policies, um, and not just you know in his supply line failures and his and and, and all that, but also really in in the social policies and the critical race theories and the 1619 projects and all of the things that are geared towards indoctrinating really Americans um, to believe that their country is evil, that that and not teaching American history, actual American history, but made up history of a different people that are evil and not America. Uh, and um, here in Israel, we see a very similar thing taking place in, in this government's uh, embrace of uh, very radical concepts of Judaism. They really don't have a foothold here in Israel and trying to undermine the edifices of Israel's Jewish identity. And one of the ways that we see this is in their uh, desire to transform uh, the Western wall, uh, Israel, the, the, you know, the remaining uh, um, supporting wall of the, uh, of the, of the temple in, in Jerusalem which is the temple, of course, is the most sacred site to Israel, to Jewish people, but uh, the Wailing Wall is a place where we pray. And uh, and there are very few Jews in Israel who are not, who don't, who don't either go or not to go to an Orthodox synagogue. We have almost no Reformed Jews. We have almost no conservative Jews in Israel. But this government uh, gives an outside role to both of those um, liberal streams of, of Judaism that are much more, and this is sort of part of its dependence on not only the Biden administration, but also on uh, the American Jewish establishment. Um, and so they're giving an outsized role to the reform movement and trying to uh, give them uh, not a foothold, but an actual you know stake and control over the Wailing Wall, which has always been controlled by the religious establishment in Israel, which is Orthodox. And um, so, you know, one of the things that's been most shocking and distressing uh, that has happened since Naftali Bennett and Ayala Shaked, who were, you know, again, I ran with them for Knesset thinking that, you know, they not realizing that they were jerks, but certainly once I realized that they were, it never occurred to me that they were capable of doing what they did, which is to form a left-wing government with the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, so their supporters, because they keep handing out jobs to everybody in their ministries, in the they they had been the heads of the National Religious Party, and um, and they had built up a real following among uh, the national religious uh, you know uh, sector in Israel, community in Israel, and. Uh, one of the notable things about tonight's rally is that for the first time, you're going to be having a sizable uh, presence of rabbis from the national religious community and also from the Haredi community because of what's happening with the Wailing Wall. And so, uh, you know, we've had a lot of criticism. We've both spoken uh, at length about, you know, the the, the political infant infantility of uh of, of the religious uh, Zionist public that they're refusing to understand what's happening uh, because they still like Naftali and Ayala. Well, they don't like either of them very much now. And today is the first day or tonight's rally is the first rally that we've seen where you're gonna have significant participation of leaders of the religious Zionist community. So I think that that speaks to an awakening and, and uh, fear that's being, beginning to grip People who thought that they could they could continue to trust Naftali Bennett and Ayala Chaked to do the right thing because they were at the end of the day uh, the representatives of the national religious community. I think that a lot of people are waking up now, more and more people, and realizing that uh, that that's not true, and that this government is truly dangerous both to Israel's. Uh, Jewish identity and also to Israeli democracy as well as, as we see, uh, to Israel's national security. So next time we do it, let's schedule the podcast so that you can come, Caroline. Okay, we, great. We'll be missing you here. I appreciate that, and I'll be missing you from my house, but uh, 
you know, next time, or maybe just do it in Jerusalem. It's so much easier. And it happens. To I'll have them internal uh, capital. Talk uh, to the, talk to your friends who organize these things. You're much better connected than I am with these important people. So you talk to your machers, tell them Carolyn says to have it in Jerusalem. Okay. I'll have them count me twice. Once for okay. me and once for you. Thanks. Thanks. All right. So guys, that's it for the Carolyn Glick Middle East News Hour this week. Uh, thanks, Gotti, again for coming and 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 doing this because it's really important. I think that what we're giving our audience is something they can't get anywhere else, and that's why they gotta watch. You gotta watch. You gotta watch. You gotta share. You gotta subscribe. Uh, subscribe all of your friends uh, and family. Uh, but this is really important stuff because what's happening in Israel really you know, affects far more than just the lives of Israelis. And the issues that we're dealing with here are unfortunately so similar to the ones that people are dealing with all over. And it's true that misery loves company, but it's also true that the things that work somewhere might work somewhere else. And we have to, we have to get back our countries. We have to, we have to do it. We got no choice. We just have to keep fighting. So we're going to do it. And, and uh, you're going to keep watching us and sharing our videos and getting the word out. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks so much. Thank you, Garland. See you. So you take, have fun at the rally tonight. Thank you. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.